Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Good morning, church. Our Bible reading this morning is taken from the book of 1 Peter chapter 5. I will begin reading from verse 8. When I am done reading, I will say this is the word of the Lord. Please respond by saying thanks be to God. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning and welcome. Welcome to the church. Uh, if you are here for the first time, we're really ha- happy that you've joined us. Um, we're happy that you also stayed throughout the service. And now we've come to the place where we uh, want to um, preach the word. So thank you, Femi, for that reading. And my name is Femi also, I'm lead pastor of City Church. And we've been going through a series in 1 Peter. In fact, we're coming to the end of that series. This is the penultimate sermon. The, ne- the last one will be next week. And so for us to do that, please, let's just pray and ask God to help us. Heavenly Father, we need you. I certainly need you at this moment, oh God, to preach your word and to make it clear to those who read. And Holy Spirit, since you are the author of this word through human vessels, I ask that you come at this point, make my words coherent, make my words clear, but bring the power uh, to convict and to transform people who are listening. Let someone and let many people meet with you today. Let them meet with Jesus Christ, I ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Some of us may be familiar with um, a singer called Fela Nicola Kokuti. Right? You know, he's probably the most famous Nigerian singer. And there was a shift that Fela had in his, um, in his uh, musical career, if you like, uh, from late 70s to, uh, to 80s. You know, prior to that, he'd done a bit of high life. Then he eventually brought his own genre of music, Afrobeat. And then he used to sing a lot of songs that were just philosophical. He was just commenting on cultural issues. But from the late 70s up until the 80s, most of his songs were just filled with commentary about the condition, the condition of the people of the country, the suffering condition. He talked a lot and lot about suffering. And I remember a particular song called Army Arrangement. At one point, he just yells out. He said, ah, suffer the Africa. And in some ways, when I read the book of 1 Peter, I almost feel like saying, one Peter, uh, suffer day for 1 Peter. You know, in the five chapters, it's a small book. In the five chapters in the book, and just has about over, just slightly over 100 verses. 
No less than 20 of them have a reference to the word suffering, sufferings, or variants of it, either variants or antonyms of the word suffering. And that's just explicit, explicit uh, quotations of that word. The concept of suffering really is the, is the backdrop of the whole context of the letter. And the question then becomes, why does Peter speak so much and much about suffering? In fact, in this passage, we see suffering appear twice already again. Why does he speak about suffering from the beginning of the book all the way to the end? I think he does so in the same way that Fela spoke about suffering over and over and over again. It's not that they enjoy it. It's that this was the context. It was reflective of the context that their audience um, um, was going through. And so maybe you also, you look at your life and you say, yeah, that's exactly what it is. And that's why this book is important, because it's not that you just had suffering at one point in your life. It has been going on over and over and over again. And some people will be thinking, you know what? The way suffering has been in my life, it cannot just be down to some random occurrences here and there. It seems like the suffering is quite orchestrated. It seems like it is intentionally put together. It seems like there's someone behind that suffering. In fact, it feels like the devil is behind suffering. The devil is behind my suffering. I feel like well, in all the times we've discussed about suffering through this book, I've not seen the devil appear. Well, it does now. And Peter, when he speaks about the devil, though, he's going to avoid two um, errors that many people fall into with the devil. One is ignorance. The other one is obsession. By ignorance, it means that you never talk about the devil. By obsession, it means that you always talk about the devil. And so what does Peter do? Even the fact that Peter only refers to the devil at this point in the letter shows that he avoids the two errors. On one hand, he avoids ignorance because he does mention the devil here. On the other hand, he avoids obsession. Why? Because he only mentions him once at the end of the book. In other words, to those who... Um, fall into the camp of ignorance, he's saying to you that the devil is more involved than you care to know. And for those who are in the obsessive camp, he's saying that the devil is more is not as involved as you think you know. And so we want to talk about how to resist this devil. That's the title of this sermon, by going through what Peter tells us here. And we're going to look at that in three different uh, from three different, uh, in three different sections. Knowing our enemy, resisting our enemy, and trusting our friend. Knowing our enemy, resisting our enemy, and trusting our friend. So let's go to the first one, knowing our enemy. Now, notice how Peter starts verse 8, when he wants to talk about this enemy. He says, be alert and of sober mind. Be alert and of sober mind. Now, you may recall that he has used that kind of um, uh, uh, way to, to, he's used that phraseology to try to uh, um, catch your attention before in other parts of, the, of, of this book. He has done it twice. One in, refer in reference to hope in 1 Peter 1.17 and the other in reference to prayer in 4 verse 7. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you. And then the other one, he says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind that you may pray. And those times, what we found was that he wanted us to be clear-minded. 
clear-minded about the particular thing he wanted to talk about. And it's the same thing. Because if you are not clear-minded, you will fall into this uh, uh, enemy's trap. And so, what does Peter want us to know about this enemy? Very, very simple. He wants us to know about him well. Why? Because he uses a, a three-point strategy to lead to a particular goal. What's that three-point strategy? Persecution, and then deception, and then accusation. Why? For the goal of destruction. Persecution, deception, then accusation for the goal of destruction. So let's talk about who this devil is. We need to know who our enemy is. Don't forget, he says, your enemy. He is your enemy. Now, if you recall, um, two sermons ago, we spoke about the reason in general, the reason in general why there is suffering in the world. Not the reason in particular why you are going through this suffering, but the reason in general. And we attributed that to a fault, that when God created humanity, the, he told them this is the way to flourish, and they disobeyed God. What we didn't mention or go into is that how did that happen? Well, it happened because this person, this uh, entity, came as a serpent to deceive. Notice in verse, uh, Genesis 1, it says, uh, Genesis 3 verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the tree in the garden? Verse 4, You will not certainly die. Because God told them that if you eat of it, you will die. He says, you will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So do you, do you notice what is going on? First thing you have to know about him is that he opposes God. He is the adversary, right? God says what he says. What God said, he opposes with his own word. God gave his word and he gave his word. He is the ultimate adversary to what is good. And ultimately, perfection of goodness comes from God. He is ultimately God's adversary. And that actually forms, um, that, that title, actually, when you put it through the Hebrew, and you now bring it to English, it comes with a name that we're very familiar with, Satan, the adversary. In fact, we often will call him Satan as though that's his name. That's not his name. He's really the Satan because it's a title, the adversary, the Satan. Now, what he does is that because he opposes God, he's going to oppose the people of God. And so he opposed the first family, the holy family, Adam and Eve, first couple, the holy couple, Adam and Eve here. But for Peter's audiences, the church, there, he puts them, he opposes them in, uh, he opposes them. He puts them in a very difficult condition. He persecutes. He brings suffering into their lives. Maybe you are going through a lot of difficulty. And yes, we have spoken about different things here, but looking from another perspective, the enemy is always going to be up against the church. Why? He is your enemy, as it says in verse 8. Your enemy. So he persecutes the church. Now he persecutes them for another purpose. Well, after he persecutes them, sorry, it leads to something else. He deceives them. He deceives them. Now, if you notice with Adam and Eve, right, the deception came. How? He told them that what God told them was not going to come to pass. And since what God told them was not going to, he basically was saying that God was lying. And essentially, that's what he does with Peter's audiences, right? Peter wants them to live such godly lives 
among the pagans. They are a minority, and people believe in another religion. They have another culture, but he wants them to maintain their identity, but continue to engage with the people that are around them. Maintain their identity as Christians, but continue to engage with the culture. What does he come to do? What does Satan or the Satan come to do or the devil come to do? He wants them to either lose their faith and get assimilated in the pagan culture or to be alienated from the culture, to hate the pagans and probably rebel against the government. And we've looked at some of those things. But you see, in the place of suffering, he comes and brings deception. And maybe for you, right now, he's trying to deceive you by providing an alternative way of coming out of your situation. You feel like God is not there for you, so maybe it's a particular illness, and then you have to go to meet one prophet um, on the beach at night and give him some kind of offering. Or he tells you to get rid of that person, get rid of that person, um, only so into this person's life. You know, do all manner of things. For some of us, it is for us to deny that the COVID-19 situation is really true. It's for us to think that it's a conspiracy that's been put together by some kind of new world order and they are coming against us. And so we have to rebel against everything and all the measures that the government is putting in place for our safety. For some of us, it may be that ultimately you are going to deny the goodness or the existence of God. This kind of deception is what he does. And then the deception then moves towards the accusation. Accusation. There's somebody recently that um, I had to uh, speak and counsel, right? Um, this person fell into terrible sin, a really grievous sin. And it was partly out of ignorance because while the person was in it, the person did seek advice from friends. Now, they didn't give him the best of advice, and so the person continued. As time went on and he got more and more into the sin, you know what he started to do? He started to seek the particular friends he would seek counsel from, and he was avoiding others. And as time went on, he started to limit the people he was speaking to, and then he started to limit the information that he was giving to them until he fell terribly. He was already in it, but he then fell terribly. You notice what was happening? He was being deceived. And so eventually, after he fell, the information came to me. I confronted him with his sin. And then he was totally, he became aware of it. He, the next phase was that he never thought that God would forgive him. He thought he was such a bad person and he didn't know what to do. Whenever we talked about the grace of God, he said he doesn't know whether God could forgive him because he himself is not sure whether or not he will not commit that sin again. He didn't know what to do next. In fact, he decided that, you know what, the line of living that he was going into in serving God, he said he wasn't going to do it again. And I asked him, what will you do after he said he wasn't sure? Notice what the devil wanted to do with this person. He was listening to the devil's voice. The devil had deceived him. He'd fallen into sin and now the devil was accusing and accusing and accusing him. He relentlessly accuses us. And the purpose of accusing him was to do what? destroy him. That's why in Revelation 12 verse 9 and 10, he says, it calls him different names. Some of the names you, always, you already um, know, but it describes him in this accusatory um, identity. It says, the great dragon was held down. The ancient serpent, the devil, or the Satan, who leads the whole world astray. For the accuser, verse 10, of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. 
listen to me. You have an enemy. That persecutor is also a deceiver. That deceiver is also an accuser. And that accuser is also a destroyer. He wants to destroy God's work. He wanted to destroy the faith of this guy and ultimately destroy his future. You want to know something? Even in this sermon, the enemy has been relentlessly working against us. Like, I can't tell you, I've been so unsettled about preaching this sermon more than any other one. I've been so confused in many, in just putting my thoughts together. And as we wanted to start it, so many different things that would, um, that, that uh, need to be put in place for us to record this thing just started, you know, coming against us. Somebody wanted to come, we had to stop and stop. Then you got, we got um, uh, an email saying that, oh, um, we won't have light for a certain period of time because of something. Then we started to record, then some noise, started, then the camera wasn't working. Then after that, we continued to record. I couldn't find my scriptures. Then after that, we continued to record. And just as we're coming to the end of a particular place, the timer went off. Just after that, also, a trailer came and they started making noise. And all of this is because he wanted to destabilize one so that one would be angry and one would be confused and the truth of God's word would not come. We have an enemy. No matter how educated we are and no matter how much we know people who are obsessed with the enemy, that does not mean that we don't have the enemy. He exists. So for many of us who are of the ignorant camp, don't forget that. This isn't just an abstraction. This isn't just an, a violation of laws. The things that happen to us, there is an enemy against us. And many times when we ignore him, we are falling particularly into his trap. Paul says we are not ignorant of his schemes. Don't be ignorant of him. Now, if we are not ignorant of him, and we then have to face it, what do we need to do? We need to resist him, which is what it says in verse 9. And resisting him is exactly what we want to talk about in the second point. Resisting your enemy. One of the things I do, um, just with my job, is that I answer questions. I have to answer questions. And because of that, I haven't answered questions for quite a number of years. I'm also fascinated about the nature of questions. That not all questions are the same. I often tell people that uh, don't expect a simple answer if you are going to ask me a complex question. There are different kinds of questions. There are some questions that you can get straightforward answers to. There are other questions that you can't. So, for instance, straightforward question, what is 2 plus 4? How many children do you have? Are you hungry? These are all straightforward questions, and therefore you get straightforward answers. But imagine a child that you find that is succeeding um, at school. And that child, you find that the parents invest a lot to send him to a very good school. So they invest in everything that that child needs to learn. And you find in that school, they have very good teachers. And also, you find that that child actually works very hard. And so somebody asks you, I just need one straight answer from you. Why is that child succeeding? Like, uh, it's not that simple. Because if the child just worked hard and it was in a terrible school and the parents were not actually... Um, giving him all that he needs, the child won't succeed. If the parents actually uh, um, uh, were, you know, put the child in a very in a very good school and there were good teachers, but the child wasn't working hard, the child probably wouldn't succeed. It's not that simple. And so many of us have this question. I'm sure you're asking it right now. Who? How do I know who is 
um, behind my suffering? God or the devil? That's not a straightforward answer. I'll give you a story about a guy called Job in the Bible. Job was a very wealthy guy. Job was a guy who served God. He had a lot of children. He had a lot of servants. He had a lot of um, 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 wealth, as I said, you know. But um, Satan goes to meet God. Satan goes to meet God and says, you know what? The reason this Job actually serves you, right? Do you think he fears you for nothing? No. I can tell you, once you attack all that he has, right, he will curse you and die. And so God says, okay, go ahead, but don't hurt his life. And so Satan goes, takes all his wealth away, destroys his servants, destroys all his children. And so when Job hears about this, Job doesn't curse God and die. And Satan then says, and I'm reading this Job 1, 11, Job 2, 5. And then Satan then says, um, no, it's because you haven't touched his body, his skin. If you afflict him with illness, I can assure you he will curse you and die. God says, go ahead. He did it. And again, Job didn't curse him and die. So what happened, the enemy was attacking and persecuting Job. And what was the purpose? He wanted to deceive Job. Because once Job says, curse God and die, what has happened? He has, made, he has taken into his mind that God is not good. So the enemy wanted to deceive Job about his understanding of God. Now he didn't. So what then did the enemy now do after? His wife in verse 9 of chapter 2 came and said, are you still going to continue like this? Why don't you curse God to his face and die? See, now the deception was coming in. The deception was coming in. And then after that, after you go on persecution, deception, what do you expect next? Accusation. Because still Job did not sin, but the next thing is that his friends came. He had three friends. One of them's name was Eliphaz. In chapter 4, Eliphaz speaks about Job's condition, and in chapter 15, he speaks about Job's condition. What do you think Eliphaz said? Initially, when the friends came, they, they didn't say anything. So they came to comfort him. Eventually, Job calls them miserable comforters. And I'll tell you why. Because of certain kinds of things that Eliphaz says. Verse 4, chapter 4, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse uh, 7, he says this. Consider, sorry, chapter 4, verse, uh, I think it's 7. Consider now who, consider now, this is what Eliphaz says to Job. Consider now who, being innocent, has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? Job, look at you. If you are upright, this won't happen to you. If you are innocent, this won't happen to you. Or verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 5 to 6. It goes more direct. Your sin prompts your mouth. You adopt the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, not mine. Your lips testify against you. What is he doing? Accusation. So I want to ask you, Job's suffering, who was behind it? Was it God? Was it Satan? Was it his wife? Was it his friends? Let's remove the wife and the friends. God or Satan? Notice that at the end of the day, that God is always sovereign over all our suffering. Whether or not Satan is involved, there is a sense in which Satan is God's, is, uh, the, the devil is, uh, the, uh, as one theologian said, the devil is God's devil. Not that, remember we said that the devil is the adversary, he opposes everything about God, but that he can't do anything outside of the sovereignty of God. The thing you always have to remember about suffering is God is always sovereign over our suffering. While the, de while the devil, being our enemy, is always looking to bring about our destruction. 
Don't obsess over this particular thing. Is this devil here or not? Why don't you just see the devil is always against you? He's always against you. And therefore, he will bring suffering to your life. But God is always sovereign and God is always for you. God is always sovereign. And so somehow, while the devil means your destruction, God always is trying to do something for you. So what we have to learn about suffering in God's world, the world that God has created, is God is always sovereign over our suffering. He uses it for our good. Whereas Satan always wants to use suffering for our destruction. Don't get bogged down into every detail about it. You have an enemy. What you need to do with the enemy is to resist him. And how do you resist him? Peter tells us by standing firm in him. Now, this is to those of us who are mostly obsessive with him. He doesn't say resist him by constantly, directly engaging with him. He says, stand firm, sorry, in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. To resist the enemy, you have to look somewhere else in the faith. What is the faith? He didn't say in your faith or a faith or in faith. He says, stand firm in the faith. The faith is the body of teachings that summarize the Christian religion, but has at its arrow edge the gospel. Stand firm in the faith. That is, stand firm in the gospel. And so what does that mean? Well, let's look at those three things that he uses to bring about destruction. How do we stand firm in the faith? How do we apply it to those three things? Let's go up. Let's go with that. Remember, it is persecution, deception, and accusation. When it's persecution, what do you do? Well, Peter says, very simple, remember that the gospel is not just to convert an individual, it's to convert many people and bring them into the church. Now, if you feel you are a target because of the gospel by Satan, guess what? There are other people who are targets as well. So he says, stand firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. When I used to grow up, I used to say something like this, that there is joy in collective failure. Like, if I failed alone, it's really bad. But when other people are failing with me, then we are all, at least, there's some comfort there. Now, Peter isn't exactly saying that, all right? There's no joy in collective failure. You don't, you don't say, well, I'm suffering. It's bad that I'm suffering and somebody else isn't suffering. So when we are suffering together, it's all good. No. But Peter is, is saying something about, he's saying that there is comfort when you know that somebody else is suffering the same thing you are suffering when you guys didn't deserve it and you're suffering for something good. You are suffering for as, as people who are partakers in the suffering of Christ. Um, that is, you are able to stand. If you are just on your own, right, receiving this thing on your own, you see there's no, there are no, people don't understand me. But when you see somebody who is going through the same thing you are going through and that person is able to stand, you get encouragement from it. You get inspiration from it. It's like Ken Sariwa, uh, when Ken Sariwa, uh, a famous author, was imprisoned under Abacha's regime, they tried to get them to break, he and his people, and he kept inspiring them. And the people, when they saw that Ken Sariwa was not breaking, it made the other guys also stand. So he says, stand firm in the faith, knowing that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. If she doesn't break, I won't break. If she doesn't go tempt and, 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 and gets deceived by the devil, it gives me the strength to not do the same thing. Second thing is how do we do this with deception? Well, I don't know if you know an ungrateful person. Have you ever met an ungrateful person? I know one ungrateful person. And he's the kind of person that when he needs a favor from you, he will 
talk to you with desperation, desperation of his last breath. He'll beg you with that. But when you've done the favor for him, he will also thank you. Uh, he will thank you in a way that he'll pray you to the highest heavens. Now, after that has gone, then he needs another favor from you. And then he comes with the same kind of desperation again. Now, if you delay or you don't give him what he wants, he all of a sudden starts becoming aggressive towards you. What happened to the other favor at that, that time? Well, that was with that time. You see, the problem with him and other ungrateful people like that uh, is that they have a view of time and rewards that is very, very short-sighted. It's on a short scale. It's only at that time and that moment they need it. So they appreciate you or they feel like they need you only in that space of time. After that time has elapsed, we are resetting from the very beginning. So their view of time and rewards is very, very short-sighted. And Peter is saying, the devil will always get to you if you have that same kind of short-sighted view of time and, and view of rewards. Because he would always amplify your need for this particular thing that he's tempting you with, the pleasures that he wants to give you. He will tempt you with the fact that you need this thing right now. And this thing will give you lasting pleasure. But what does Peter say we should do with him? He says, the God of all grace in verse 10, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while. The devil magnifies your suffering and makes it the biggest thing possible. And then he makes it seem as though this will happen forever and ever and ever. So he tempts you with a pleasure to come out of it. Whereas Peter calls your suffering something that happens for a little while. For a little while. Now, some of us have been going through this thing for five years or eight years or ten years. How can Peter say it's for a little while? It's not the thing in itself, but it's what he compares it to. He says, eternal glory. He compares your suffering to glory, and then he compares that uh, to glory in Christ, and then he compares the time, the time that you're experiencing it to eternity. He calls it eternal glory. In other words, God's pleasures are of infinite more worth and for an infinite time when you compare it to the sufferings that you're experiencing. Don't give in to Satan's deception. Apply the gospel. Apply the hope of the gospel, your knowledge of the hope of the gospel to tell him to stay away. This is how you stand firm in the faith against deception. And then the final thing is accusation. Accusation. Yes, many of us are in the current condition that we are in because we listened to Satan's voice and we committed the sin. Ultimately, we are responsible for it. The decision that you took was your fault. But when we have come to that place, we never remain there. We either go up or we go down. When you listen to Satan's voice, the voice of accusation, it is to bring you down and ends up destroying you. Whereas when you listen to the Spirit's voice through the gospel, it is to take you up. See, in Revelation 12, verse 9 to 10, we spoke about how Satan is called, uh, uh, the devil is called, well, he was referred to the, as the old serpent, the devil, the Satan, but then he was called the accuser who accuses the brother and sisters day and night. But 
it says something about those brothers and sisters. They were not ultimately destroyed by his accusation. You know what? They overcame him. How did they overcome him? Very simple. Revelation 12 verse 11. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. In other words, they overcame him. They triumphed over him by the gospel, the blood of the Lamb, the death of Christ. And they overcame him in such a way that they understood that gospel that they proclaimed it. They proclaimed the gospel. They proclaimed what the gospel has achieved in them, the word of their testimony, and also what the gospel was still yet to bring to them. They overcame him because they knew, they understood, they meditated on that gospel. They overcame and resisted him because of, of, of recognizing how the gospel had transformed them. And because of that, even if Satan was bringing persecution to them, even if Satan was bringing an onslaught of deception, they loved not their lives even unto death. When Satan brings his accusations against you, what do you bring back? Having been deceived, what do you throw back at him? If you just throw back self-will, if you just throw back, I don't know, um, and some kind of uh, um, homespun psycho pop psychology, that will not work. If you just say, well, I'm better than you, I'm better, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, that, no, you throw the gospel back at him. The gospel does not mean that you forget your sin. No, when the spirit takes the gospel and applies it to us, where Satan brings accusation and guilt, the spirit brings conviction, but conviction leads to repentance. Constant, relentless accusation leads to guilt and ultimately destruction. When the Spirit brings, um, uh, uh, when the Spirit applies the gospel, it brings conviction, but that conviction ultimately leads to our restoration. And that is what enables us to triumph over the enemy. Reminds me of a song that says, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, Upward I look and see him there, who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bids me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Do you see that without the gospel, we can never triumph over Satan's devices. But with the gospel, we continue to triumph over him over and over again. After they brought the accusations against Job, after the persecution, the deception did not work, an accusation was coming against him. What did Job say? I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the end, at that, and, and that in the end, he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. Job understood the gospel. Job said, no matter what happens to me, I love not my life unto the death. I know my Redeemer lives. Always stand firm in the faith. For this is how we resist the devil. That leads me to my final point. So my final point is trust in our friend, 
And I want to speak to a certain group of us that are listening now. Because what you are saying is, I understand. You are talking to strong people. You are either talking to those who are ignorant of the devil or those who obsess over the devil. That's what your first two points have done. But you're not speaking to me. Because those people are strong and I'm completely broken. You see, my suffering has broken me. The combination of all my suffering over the years has broken me. I am not strong. It's so easy for you to say as a preacher, you can say all of these things. You don't know the brokenness I've experienced. You say, I'm just too broken in a way that I don't see God coming through for me. I can't fight the devil on my own because I'm just too broken by my suffering. I want to say, with all the love that I can muster, that you are mistaken. Because if the other people think I'm telling them to stand firm on their own, then even they are wrong. This is not something you can do on your own. I understand that you are broken. But I also believe that there is hope for you. Why? Maybe I can use this analogy. It's about art. It's about broken glass. You know, I don't know why whenever we see glass that has been broken, what do we think about? Right? What do you think about? Maybe you are like my mom who once told uh, my sister, if you break any split, I will use it to color. You know, I will use it to put a tribal mark on you. We're always scared about breaking things in our, in, in our house. My mom's porcelain and, 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 and what have you. Because you know that once you see broken pieces of glass, then all of a sudden there's nothing you can do with them again. It's the dilemma of Humpty Dumpty. Remember Humpty Dumpty? What's the dilemma? Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. And so you feel like my heart, my life has been so shattered. Divorce here. The children are not doing the way, uh, they're not going about the way I would want them to, 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 go, to be. I can't afford my rent. Or I can't get married. Or my health has just, is one thing here over and over again. My parents were not around for me. My heart is totally broken. What hope is there for me? I am just like the broken pieces of glass there. And so you see the broken pieces of glass on that picture. But there's another picture I want to show you. And it's this one. It's of a... Um, a what you call um, it's mosaic art, but it's mosaic art that comes from broken glasses. This one is a broken glass mosaic mandala, rainbow mandala. Doesn't it look wonderful? How do you get that from broken pieces of glass? And the first thing you're going to tell me is, oh, it needs an artist. Absolutely, an artist. And what does this artist have to do? The artist has a vision of what the pieces can become. The artist must also have the ability to be able to do it and then the intentionality to go about doing it. A vision of what those broken pieces can become. The ability to go about doing it and the intentionality to go... Uh, sorry, the ability... Uh, to bring this about and the intentionality to go about doing it. Yes, your numerous sufferings have made your life like these broken pieces of glass. 
But the first thing I have to tell you is that the devil is no artist. The devil only comes to destroy. He does not have, he has a vision and that vision is not only to keep you broken, it's to completely shatter you. He is an art destroyer. His only vision is not just your physical destruction. His main vision is your eternal destruction. And he has the ability and the intentionality of achieving that if you will allow him to. Don't do that. Resist him. But then we can say, maybe I can do it on my own. Peter is telling me to stand firm. So I must do it. I must be stoic and I must do it. Stiff upper lip. With all the determination, maybe you've listened to a number of motivational speakers and they're telling you, you can do it, it's in you. Well, that can achieve one or two things. But in terms of our eternal future, that can achieve nothing. Because you may have the vision to be able to, uh, the vision of what it means to be whole, but you don't have the ability or the intentionality in order to achieve that. You do not have the plan to be able to achieve it. Neither do you have the power to be able to go about achieving that. That's why you have to read what Peter says very carefully. Because even though Peter says, stand firm in the faith, Peter says, the God of all grace will himself make you strong, firm, and steadfast. In other words, Peter is saying, Stand firm in the faith by standing firm in God. It is God who is that artist that is able to bring things together. It is God who is that spiritual mosaic artist that is able to bring the broken pieces of your life together. It is God who ultimately can take all the shattered glasses all around, scattered, bring them together and make you a wonderful work of art. That's why he says... The God of all grace will himself do what? Restore you. Not only does he have a vision of bringing you together, he has the ability, he has the power. That's why in verse 11 it says, to him be the power forever and ever. He has the eternal power to do what people see as impossible in your life. God can restore you. But not only does he have the vision and the, and the ability, the power, he has the intentionality. And the intentionality is what he did in the gospel. Why do I know that God can do that for you? It's because that's exactly what he did with Jesus Christ. Jesus' life was basically a broken piece, uh, sorry, a broken mosaic, broken glass mosaic piece of art. Why? Because Jesus lived the life you could not live. But he ultimately died the death you deserve. On the cross, Jesus was broken in pieces. He was, as it were, eternally broken for your sins. But in his resurrection, God by his spirit brought him to life and put him back together in a way that meant that he could never die again. And so if you stand firm in the faith of Jesus Christ, if you stand firm in what God has achieved in, in Jesus for you, guess what will happen? He's died and he's been broken for your sins so that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead can come into your life and start to put the pieces of your life together. Please make no mistake. John 10.10 10 says this, This thief comes to steal, 
to kill and to destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Don't give up on God. Why? He hasn't given up on you. Put your life and your trust in Him and see what the God of love can do. It reminds me of yet another hymn or a poem. Writer says this, Though afflicted tempest tossed, comfortless a while thou art, do not think thou canst be lost, thou art graven on my heart. All thy waste I will repair, thou shalt be rebuilt anew, and in thee it shall appear what the God of love can do. In thee it shall appear what the God of love, the God of all grace can do. Ultimately, when we come and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are bringing the broken pieces and the broken glasses of our lives and we are saying, take you are the great artist. Make something beautiful of my life. Take. With all my suffering, I know it's not meaningless. Because in you, all that is meaningless becomes meaningful. That person I spoke about, who was caught in sin, who wanted to give up. Ultimately, after a while we spoke and spoke, he said, he went back and started asking himself basic questions about the gospel. This is somebody that ministered to people. I said he wanted to ask, really, is it for me? Is it for me? Even me in this terrible state. Slowly and surely, he started to accept it. And I'm glad to say, even though he went through discipline, that his life, he's beginning to see his life being put together again. He started to have a zest for life again. Not because of what I said to him, but because of the content of what I said, because of what God had done. And his spirit was at work to put him together. That same spirit is here now to put you together. So let us pray. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church Love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.